Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is Stephen Dimmitt, and John Long is my guest today. John is both a renowned climber and author. He was one of the original Stone Masters and made a major impact on the history of climbing, pushing world climbing standards in the 70s in Yosemite Valley. If you enjoyed my episode with Ron Kauk, I am sure you are going to love this one. John is a professional storyteller, and he shared all sorts of great stories from his early climbing days at Takeets and Suicide Rock, and stories from Yosemite. We talked about what life was like at the time, and about climbing the nose in a day with Jim Bridwell and Billy West Bay, and a bunch of other great stories from the vertical realm. We also talked about humbling moments and his journey with alcoholism. And he talked about a recent article that he wrote for Climbing Online to shine a light on alcohol and drug abuse in the climbing world. He was very open and real about that in this conversation, and he had a really powerful message to share. And that article is now available. It wasn't published at the time of this conversation, but it is now. And I link to it in the show notes, of course. And we also talked about John's latest book, Icarus Syndrome is the title. It is available in hardcover to purchase on Amazon. And Icarus Syndrome is a collection of short stories about John's life. And you'll hear more about it toward the end of our conversation. If you want to pick up that book, you can find a link to it in the show notes for this episode. You can find those by visiting thenuggetclimbing.com or by clicking the link right there in your podcast app. One quick announcement before we jump into the episode. I recently published a new page on the website called Top Lists. If you're new to the podcast or relatively new and you feel overwhelmed by the backlog of episodes and don't know where to start listening, I made a page that organizes a lot of the best of episodes of the podcast by topic and category. So you can go to thenuggetclimbing.com. There's a page called Top Lists that you can navigate to at the top of the page, and you can browse each category. There's categories like history, elite performers, dark horses, people that you've probably never heard of, but those were great episodes. I have categories for training episodes, for nutrition episodes, and ones for bouldering and sport and trad Etc. Lots of categories to choose from, and in each of those categories, you can find a handful of episodes that I think are the best ones related to that topic. So if you're new and you're enjoying the podcast and you want to dive in deeper, I encourage you to check that out. Again, that's at thenuggetclimbing.com. Click on the top lists tab at the top of the page. And that's all I got. I hope you guys enjoy this one as much as I did. And now I bring you Yosemite Stone Master, John Long. Anyhow, here we are. Here. <laughs> Anyhow, here we are. <laughs> Great to see you, John. Thanks for being yeah. here. I wonder if I shouldn't have shipped over a few feet. Because this light is so grim here. Oh, that's up to you. I'm not going to share the video. Oh, okay. Yeah. So. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah, okay, you fine. can pick your nose, whatever you want to do. No yeah. problem. <laughs> 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 
Well, John, this is really fun for me. I just talked to Ron Kauk, uh, you know, a month ago and, and just released that episode. And there were so many fun stories that came out of that. And it was such a delightful glimpse into this, you know, kind of mythical world of Camp 4 and early Yosemite climbing. And I just loved it. Uh, the response to that episode was great. And I really am excited to dig even further into a lot of those stories with you. And uh, I reached out to Ron, uh, you know, a few days ago, told him that you were going to be coming on and we had a conversation on the phone and he, he was just laughing and he just kept popping up with these stories. Oh, ask him about this. Oh, you should ask him about this. And there's so many threads I want to pull on from that. But he kept saying Largo, you know, Largo. Oh, you should ask Largo about this, about that. And I would just love to start with that. Where did the nickname Largo come from? How did you get that nickname? Um, Largo is just my name in Spanish. Oh, okay. And my mom, well, I mean, my, it's, it's a long involved story. I was adopted, but my, my adopted parents were just white people, right? Caucasians. But my mom grew up in India where I was born. And India, which is down below, it's like the asshole of California, <laughs> down below Palm Springs and we're and uh, Joshua Tree and whatnot. It's just a de- you know, it's a desert nowhere. Now they have a music festival down there. The what is it, Coachella Valley, something or other. It's like a big thing. But up until maybe a dozen years ago, when that started, India was nothing. I mean, it was it was nothing. And what they have down there is a date. Uh, there's a date festival, and they grow dates, and there's some agriculture. And when my mom was a little girl it was almost all Mexican migrant workers. And so she grew up with Spanish because she was surrounded by it. And she read Spanish newspapers and this and that. And, and so I, grew, I sort of grew up around it, Spanish and Latino culture. And then, you know, later I got married to Venezuelan. You didn't speak English. And I had sort of just been in both of those worlds, you know, as a, I don't know what you would call it, a strange visitor or whatever. But uh, early on, when I think I was in grade school, one of my Mexican friends, because I grew up around uh, Mexican-Americans, one of my Mexican friends started just started calling me Largo, and it just stuck. So it, it's, you know, even my people in my family call me that. It's just, it's just always been my nickname. <laughs> <laughs> That, that's great. Um, that's great. So you're born in 53? Yeah. How did climbing come into the picture? Because, you know, climbing had hardly been invented yet, you know, as you're a teenager. Yeah, that's not, not really. Okay. You know, <laughs> that, that wasn't, you know, climbing actually had been, was really well established. It just wasn't very many people doing it. Mm, okay. And, I mean, 1953, okay, that was, I think it was the same year Everest was climbed. For, for the first time. So, you know, if you went to the library when I was, you know, in grade school, I mean, there was all, the Annapurna, there was all kinds of books uh, that you could get on climbing and National Geographic had, had uh, Cora and Engels climbing the Titan. And, you know, the, the climbing was, was out there and there was an, R, you know, REI and other places where you could get gear and whatnot. It just, it, wasn't a big thing there wasn't a lot of people doing it but to answer your question i 
I always liked being outdoors and I was a like a little ADD kid growing up and <laughs> my only salvation was sports. So I got into sports real early and I was I was good at sports, but I liked being outside more and the I always like doing sort of crazy stuff, like any kind of adventures or or exciting. You know, I was a, a sucker for any kind of stimulation or or risk or anything like that. I I just always liked those things. Had that gene. And so I always sought out ways to be able to get out there and, and try to find that world and those people that were doing it. And when I was 16, I think. By that time, I was already, I grew, grew up below in Upland, right below Mount Baldy, which is a 12,000 foot peak. And I was, by, by that time, by the time I was 16 I, or 15, I was already hitchhiking up after school up into those mountains and just sort of wandering around, doing all the trails and then backpacking and exploring and all that. And then when I was six, 15, I guess it was 15, I uh, took a YMCA trip down the Salmon River in Idaho, like a wild, you know, whitewater trip raft. And I, I liked it so much. I begged the guy for a job. I told him I'd work for nothing. <laughs> so he, he put me to work that summer. When I was still only 15 on the Grand Canyon. So I worked for a whitewater river expedition company doing float trips down through the Grand Canyon. And that's to a 15 year old kid who grew up in a bedroom community in Southern California, that's a pretty much, you know, that's a different world, mm. like the magnitude. And, and back then they didn't regulate the water as much. And the, I mean, the Grand Canyon was the rapids down there. It was giant. I mean, that place rumbled and roared. And I just, I was in heaven, man. I made a bunch of trips that summer down, down the grand. And one of the trips was the Sierra club trip. And amongst those that had taken the trip were a bunch of climbers. And they started telling me stories about it. And, and you know, from basically from the moment the first guy instructor started describing what climbing was like and going to Yosemite and what have you, I was just, the, the notion just hooked me deep. So I went back home and started, you know, trailing through the library looking for anything that had something to do with climbing. And I mean, when you're that age and, and you're restless and have dangerous dreams, you're 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 basically looking for any, you know, any star to hook on just to give you a shimmering future, something to dream on. And that was climbing for me, even though I didn't know anything about it. But I uh, I knew the backpacker shop, which is a local place, at an outfitter. And I started inquiring there. And as it turns out, there was a local rescue team and one of the guys on the rescue team started a guide service where they could teach where they they were teaching people how to climb and i took a couple of lessons from him really good instructor too uh took me out to joshua tree and then another time with another instructor up to talk eats and i learned just like basics the basic stuff and then i recruited two hometown guys rick akamacho and richard harrison who later went on to do, you know, monumental things in climbing. And we just all fell in together and were hooked from day one. And there were some local bouldering areas that the Sierra Club had used as training grounds. 
And we just started going there every day and, you know, just sort of took it from there. Can you describe that scene a little bit more? The the bouldering, what were you guys wearing? What kind of shoes did you yeah, have? Well, <laughs> were you guys using chalk I, at that time? <laughs> yeah, well, here's 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 uh, here's an example of how lucky we were. <laughs> Even though there was we had Taki Rock, which was, you know, the Yosemite Point decimal system was invented at Takis and Takis 800 foot big granite plug in Southern California, fairly close to our house. Robbins, Chenard, Pratt, Herbert, Wiltz, Bob Camps, Mark Powell, you know, Joe Fitchin. I mean, all of those guys broke in there. That was so that had at the mo at the time, and Tom Higgins, um, at the time, Talkies and Suicide Rock across the valley, they both had what at that time was world class, world sort of the world standard in rock climbing was well represented at those, you know, when I started in 1971, it was well, very well represented. So we, we, we knew from day one, what the, the current standards were, right. There might've been harder things done a little bit, a tick harder on gridstone or the gunks or, you know, whatever, but basically the, whatever the baseline world-class standard was, then it was right there. And there was plenty of, of instances of it. You know, all kinds of different routes, five ten routes and what have you. So we had that at our disposal. But there were so few climbers that there was very few avenues into climbing, one of which, the main one, which was a Sierra Club. So people streamed in basically from the deep ecology movement and just sort of general outdoors people, backpackers, basically, right, or trekkers or peak baggers or whatever, you know, with the big clunky boots and the you know, the felt hats with all the pins in them and plumes and, you know, knickers and all that other stuff. That was, those those two worlds overlapped in a big way. Hmm. So when I started, that was, I was writing that overlap between peak baggers, backpackers, Sierra clubbers, and people that climbed. I mean, they were, they were basically one and the same. So <laughs> when I started climbing, I had low up, you know, big, like, cheap not not that cheap but like low-end mountaineering boots big clunker lug sole boots knickers which i got i had a job in a gas station so i had a little bit of money and um and so the first couple of times i went climbing i was climbing in mountaineering boots you know lug sole shoes and then i went out to joshua tree and about the maybe the second time i went out to joshua tree i saw phil this guy phil haney and phil haney was like a dedicated boulder and he had he was in it enough into it enough to where he'd heard about the legend of john gill and had gone back to colorado and sought gill out and saw all the problems at horse to Re reservoir at the time you know and there's like v8s and v9s believe it or not back in those days that gill had done at horse tooth Haney went back there and he was good enough to actually do that stuff. Then he came back to Joshua Tree and was doing this rock gymnastic stuff with Verape shoes and a chalk bag with, with shorts on. And everybody was like, what the hell is this? Right. Because <laughs> it, it was so foreign and seemingly disconnected from the 
from the mountaineering kind of, you know, back peak to the top of this granite dome out of, you know, 80 foot dome out of Joshua Tree. Here's a guy throwing double dynamics and, you know, doing all that stuff with chalk on his hands, gym shorts, long hair, varape shoes, basically exactly what we're doing today. Mm. Except the shoes weren't as good, but they were still tight fitting, smooth sole varape shoes, had the chalk bag. I mean, what else do you need bouldering? No mm. pad, of course, but anyway, <laughs> so we saw that. And we were like coming from, because Rick Akamazu was an all-American uh water polo player richard harrison quit high school to go climbing and here i am like a you know had who had always had visions of being a pro baseball player so you know with a sporting background like that we looked at that and go heck with this mountaineering stuff that's us hmm. and we found out where the where we could get the shoes which was westridge mountaineering in in santa monica so we drove all the way out like an hour and a half from Upland, California, went there, got then what were, you know, Verape shoes, PAs, and eat later EBs, got the chalk bags. And the next week, we're climbing in shorts, Verape <laughs> shoes, and a chalk bag out of Rubido. <laughs> so we got, we were really lucky because we got oriented to doing that. Like from day one, I was like 16. Mm. So, you know, without that, who knows? It, it, it might have gone along, you know, might have taken a while for us to catch on to what was happening. But from absolutely from almost day one, we had that orientation. So I felt like it gave us a big head start. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was reading up on uh, on your biography a little bit and some of your ascents that really stand out, your historical ascents. And I was really curious about Pisano overhang, actually. Um, you know, it's, did you say you started in 71? Yeah. What was the standard in 71? Do you remember? Yeah, there was, there was one 511 at suicide. Okay. So one 511 at suicide. And then two years later in 73, you did the first descent of Pisano overhang. Yeah. Can you, can you tell me about that? That's a major jump in level at that time. Yeah. Pisano overhang is now 512D. So it, yeah, it was, a. Uh, bit of a job. I mean, it's a short problem, but, uh, you know, I had, uh, I was always big, right. I was six two, two Oh five when I was climbing all the time. And just from, from rote and working out and all the rest of the stuff, I managed it to somewhat hang with the guys I climbed with a lot, like Backer and Calc and Bard and, you know, all of those Bridwell and so forth. On the thin stuff, which was absolutely horrendous for me a lot of <laughs> a lot of the times because I had big fat hands, and you know I had to figure out all kinds of different ways to compensate trying to climb with skinny guys that weighed 140 or 35 or whatever that were fiendishly strong and could get their hands and stuff. But the place where I always felt at home was like hand and fist cracks. I could just get in them, right? Mm. Or and off with cracks. And um, so I, I had a, like I knew from from the start, I might be able to do somewhat cutting standard stuff, thin cracks, but I was never going to like change the world doing that because I was, the physics were all wrong. But for white cracks, I, I recognized early, okay, I can make a splash here if I can just find the right 
kinds of things. And so I sort of sought that kind of had sought that kind of stuff out for a couple of years, climbing out of Joshua Tree. And then we'd been up to, you know, we'd make weekend trips and even weekday trips up to suicide for two years. So I'd probably been up there hundreds of times by this, you know, by 1973. And I spent two summers in Yosemite, so I knew what crack standards were. And I'd never actually seriously looked at Paisano overhang as a as a free climbing thing because it looked ridiculous. Um, it wasn't just a roof. It was it went out about maybe a dozen feet off a slab. It's a big, it's a big face uh approaching 300 feet high. And at the top of the face, called the sunshine face, it's a big summit block, like an end, like a big symbol, mm. maybe 50 feet high. And one, the bottom of it juts out over this face, you know, uh, forming a roof. But it's not just a roof. It goes out about 12 feet and it dips down. It's like a big fang kind of curving off the top of the cliff. Yeah. 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 It curves way, it curves way down before it then proceeds out the lip. So you, like I can, I've done, I've done some roof climbing at that time, at that time, near somebody and out of Josh, but I wasn't. It didn't make any sense to go out upside down and then actually to be climbing downhill, like doubly <laughs> upside down. Plus, it was super wide, too wide to be able to fish jam in parts. And now I had big fists, but it, just the whole thing looked ridiculous, right? And then one time, there's a rappel route that comes down right next to Bizano Pinnacle uh, from other routes. They sort of stream into this one place, and then you down climb a goal as you get back to the base and do another route. And we made the rappel and we're right next to Paisano and Richard looked out there and he goes, Largo, you got to get that. Get out. If you're half a man, you get out there and give that a shot. And I'm like, <laughs> I go, what are you like? What? And uh, he goes, well, at least look at it. And uh, so he put me on belay and I went out a little with no intention of leading it, but I actually stuck my arms up into this thing and found I could actually hang into the, in the crack for a moment. And so over the next couple of weeks, I'm like, well, you know what the hell? Maybe, maybe uh, you know, maybe maybe there's some way I can. I mean, it's worth looking at anyway, right? Because about we're at that age and at that time where I mean, you try anything as long as you weren't going to get killed, might as well give it a shot. So I decided, okay, we're going to go up there. We had another thing we were doing, working on a new route. I said, but before we get started, let me at least give a shot on this Paisano, but it was, it's rated five. It was rated a three question, maybe even a four. Nobody really knew. None of us had done it. I didn't know anybody that had done it, but it was an eight climb, but they said it's really expanding. That's what it said. You got to be really careful because of the pen trip. You're going to fall out of the overhang and bash into the slab below and it's going to be bad. So I said, well, this is against the rules, but I'm going to rappel down to this thing and see if I can't beat a bong in at the lip of this thing mm. and see what that's like. And I, I, actually, Richard rappelled down, and we had a big steel four-inch bong, and he, he pounded this bong in, but it would go in about three hammer blows, and then the thing was so expanding, it'd just shoot right back out. Mm. Like, it, like it, you're never going to get a good pin in this thing, right? So he cocked around with this thing at the lip, positioning it in a way that it was more of a nut than a pin. Like it was lodged 
in a slight constriction as you would like a hex or something, right? So if you were really careful and pulled directly down on it, it probably would hold. <laughs> but don't count on falling on it because it was probably shipped and fire out of there. So the, oddly enough, the, the initial challenge of climbing Paisano was not climbing. It was not falling. <laughs> All right. Like the, the first two pieces of pro I got in in the actual roof were were big nut custom made nuts that my grandma would make like early versions of tube chocks. Oh wow! That were was... that were good, but huh. it took me a bunch of fiddling around to actually get them in place, right? And I knew okay, those are good, but there was about a ten foot section between the last one of those and the lip, and the lip was probably going to be the crux. And I had to be really careful. And if I couldn't do it, I was going to have to be super careful just to lower off the thing and then end up 40 or 50 feet down on the slab and then climb the slab and back. You know, it's sort of an involved kind of thing. Mm. But I, it was really, I had to be heads up. Like mm -hmm. I couldn't go doing crazy stuff out there. So I, I had no idea what, how I was going to actually do this, but I got those nuts in place. And I had a pair of uh, leather gloves, like thin leather gloves. There was, <laughs> you should see the mythology that got started over those gloves. But anyway, <laughs> um, Bridwell had showed me how to use those. We used them on a route called, uh, what was the name of it? Gold Rush, uh, like a hard 511 fist crack that was filled with, like back then, had super gritty like knives on the inside of the thing. And this is before we sort of refined how to tape up. Mm. So he had a pair of thin gardening gloves and cut the fingers off them. And with a wrap of athletic tape around the wrist, it would stay on your hands. And those kept, kept us from ripping our hands up on, on a couple of these wide cracks. So I, I used a pair of gloves on this thing and I stuck my sort of arms up, sort of half fist jamming, half arm barring into this thing and got out of ways, and I'm looking down right where the thing shoots down, like the, the fang section. I'm going straight out of the roof, and it goes down. And I didn't know. I'm hanging in this thing going, man, how am I, what am I going to do here? And for some reason, you know, I just kicked my feet in front of me into mm. the down-sloping thing and wiggled them up in there. And actually, I go, oh, shit, I, my, I can get healing toe locks with my legs stuffed in this crack. So I'm not exactly sure. I'm not exactly sure how I managed to do it, but I'm upside down with my feet over my head, basically hanging on my legs and getting really marginal armbar fist jam stuff enough to unweight my upper body and sort of reposition. So I'm going out feet first and it's really my feet doing all the work. Right. And I have no idea what I'm doing. Okay. <laughs> Like none. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm just barely staying in, in in this thing. And then I get to the lip of this thing and clip the bolt, you know, or clip the bong and I say, Well, I'm not sure how to do this. And somehow or another, I got one leg in front of me over the lip and got it hooked on something, and then did some jiggery pokery <laughs> around the bong, and I I I could actually stretch up far enough and get a one fist jam. And that enabled me to suck my feet over the lip, and then I got my feet on the on the on the face edges that were there, 
it's vert for just a little bit above there, and it starts kicking back. And then it scrambled the top, and I'm like, wow, that was weird. <laughs> and uh, and that was sort of it, you know. I go, okay, and, you know, all right, how are we going to clean this thing? Because they... <laughs> Rick and Richard didn't want any part of this thing, right? Just let's go, let's get up, let's hurry up and get on with the thing that we came here to do. Good effort, you know, this and that. So I wrapped down, cleaned the bong out, saluted it out there, got the nuts out, and we just we just left. And it, it when it was when we first did it, I was like, well, it's so different and so peculiar. It seemed more like wrestling than climbing. Mm. So. I had no idea what to rate it or, you know, I mean, it was just one of the, it was like a freak kind of thing. Yeah. And it wasn't until about 10 years later that Gennaro and Levitt in a, in a parking lot structure that had cracks in it of that size, they figured out how to hand stack. And even doing that after they perfected that, they were, Turns out they were pretty sort of maxed on on Paisano because it went down so much. Now modern people still struggle, but they they can they can do that. You know, modern off width climbers that really know about hand stacking and leg jamming can can get out that thing. But yeah, mm. it was uh, for the time. Yeah, it was pretty pretty <laughs> futuristic. And, and I can't really claim to have like visionary whatever. It's just a young <laughs> kid getting out there. And trying jackass stuff and getting away with it. <laughs> sure. That's the truth of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like I had zero idea what I was doing. <laughs> that is so fascinating. I mean, for people listening, it's imagine what Pete Whitaker and Tom Randall did, you know, on the century crack, like this kind of roof crack off with thing, but without cams in 1973. <laughs> it's just, just amazing to see photos of this thing. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the stuff that they're doing is really, really long, too. So you got to yeah, get credit. Yeah. I mean, I just busted out a new technique on that, but that's a short problem. The roof is 20 feet or something, right? Mm, Those mm-hmm. guys are doing it on a monumental scale. So, you know, kudos to those guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, that's amazing. I want to ask about one more. Uh, you pushed standards again a few years later. This is now in 1978. Uh, can you tell me about Hangover? Um, yeah, that's amazing you know about that one. Um, <laughs> it's amazing what you can learn on the internet. And the reason why is, if, if, hang, if, if I think if the Hangover was at, uh, if the Hangover was at in El Dorado or you know, the gunks or New River Gorge or someplace where people climb all the time now. Uh, it'd probably be a fairly renowned problem, but uh, it's a Takis, and Takis is an old trad route, and it's got bolt-protected sport, you know, uh, bolt-protected routes, which would sort of qualify as sport routes, with the exception that the bolts are 30 and, you know, 25, 30 feet apart. <laughs> so Takis and Suicide... Is, is still really popular for budding and experienced track climbers to go up there and do classic stuff. Mm. But those run-out face routes are, it's a ghost town. Nobody does that stuff. Mm-hmm. So consequently, as crags that would attract people who would be interested in doing something like Hangover, Takis is not one of them. And so there's just not, you know, there's not, it's not a place where those kind of climbers go. 
And so that's been a sort of a, I think probably a well-kept secret, but by the night, by the mid 1970s, we had scoured talkies and suicide looking for any aid climb that was still left to free climb. Cause we, we had found some, you know, Latois and the vampire and, and, uh, there's a, there's a couple other there others there that are amongst the best four and five pitch free climbs in the United States. I mean, they're like, like the vamp, like you got the vampire, you got, uh, what's that one in El Dorado? A naked edge. I mean, the, 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 those two routes were done somewhere around the same time. And those were like quintessential. Okay. Here's where the feature is. Right. And so Takis has got those kind of things, but then, you know, as usual, as we kept, you kept, you keep picking over the same crag, looking for eight climbs to free climb, you know, it got, the pickets got slimmer and slimmer until all that was left were things that were like, nobody's doing that. Right. <laughs> and one of those was the hangover, which was very, you know, another, another pretty short problem. The, uh, you have to climb a couple pitches up to get to it. And then there's a, there's maybe a 30 or 40 foot little five pin section corner stemming thing, sort of weird, not good protection, but it goes up to a prow, like a prow that sticks out with a sharp edge in the middle of it. And it, it shoots out at about 120 degrees and goes up for maybe 20 feet, 15, 15 or 20 feet. And that's, that was going to be the crux of it. And there's a real incipient like rope crack that Robinson nailed. I don't know how he did it. Hmm. Um, hooking and, you know, like a state of the art back in the 60s. I have no idea how this guy got up this thing on aid, but he he, he did because there's hardly any crack there. Hmm. But there were holes on this thing. And at that time, we were really into doing dynamic climbing. And we're looking for anything see, the problem with, with dynamic climbing back then was anything that had dynamic climbing on it would require or, or was going to be on a, generally speaking, was going to be on a face. And with the ground up, up ethic, there was no, no way to protect that kind of stuff. Mm. That's why nobody did any sport climbing because you couldn't protect it ground up, right? Otherwise, we would have been doing it. And that was the case for that thing. So I broke the rules again and put a bolt in up there. There was a horizontal crack, and I, I welded a like a lost arrow in, and then about a body length above that, I put a bolt in, figuring, well, at least I can go up and boulder on this. At this point, we're just looking for anything new to do at Talk Eats. So put the bolt in, said, well, I'm going to try to boulder up this arete, but you had to sort of traverse into it. And the first time I went there, we only got the, uh, I got the horizontal in, I got the bolt in, and then we bagged it. Then I went back again, Mike Waugh, and learned from that. We I got pretty close, but I couldn't do it after we probably tried it half a dozen times. But I had had some idea in my mind. I said, I think you are probably not doing this right, but I think there's probably some way because I had this big parkour kind of move, sideways, weird barn door thing to get over to an arete where you had to do a huge dynamic. And then some really hard static static moves out of the top of the thing. And it was just a really hard, you know, it's like a hard bouldering sequence to put together. And at that time, 
I had very limited experience of bouldering on a rope like that, right? Mm. So I wasn't sure how to project anything like that. I never really, very rarely actually worked on anything. We could just, either we could just do it or we didn't, you know? Mm. And so I, but I, I really wanted to try try to actually get this thing. So I went back again with Mari Gingri and did it, but I I wasn't satisfied because he had to do a big sa- big sideways move, and I thought maybe I'd like come on the rope a little bit. It, mm. it had limited my swing, and I, it didn't feel totally clean to me. So I went back a third time or fourth time <laughs> and got it. Now, no, I, I think I have this wrong. I, I think what happened was I went up there with, after Mike Waugh, I went up there with a bunch of other guys and I, we got it. I got it. And, but that was what it was. Yeah. Uh, I didn't like, I didn't feel like I did it totally clean. So I went back with Mari and then got it. So, <laughs> and that was later by 25 years later, some really good gym climbers went down there and, uh, you know, over a couple of weekends and couldn't do it and said it was 513 C or something. So, <laughs> so that, <laughs> So that, that is was, amazing. That was another one that was, uh, you know, who knows how accurate any of these ratings really are. Sure. Still um, just incredible. Yeah. I mean, you're, if you're, you know, I was climbing 300 days a year and I was 20 something and fit <laughs> and working out. I mean, you're going to do that stuff if, <laughs> if the, if the situation's right. <laughs> I'm sure, but you know, really good climbers now could just would go out there and do it right off. <laughs> I want to look more into it. I, I'm curious if uh, it's getting repeated more. Do, yeah, do you, you, know be, do you no, happen to know? Well, I, I am. I don't know. Not, yeah. not to my knowledge, but it wouldn't be because the thing was that hard. It would be because, as I said, in my opinion, the if it isn't repeated, I haven't heard of a repeat. But the reason would be because Takis doesn't attract the kind of climbers that would do something like that. Not because it's unrepeatable. That that. That idea is absurd in today's world. Mm. People are climbing two grades harder than that, than that easily. So I'm not under the delusion that, that that thing is anywhere remotely beyond what most gym climbers could probably do right now. Mm. It was just at the time, under those circumstances, you know, with so little experience of, of doing anything like that. That, that was what... You know, now we people are doing that all day long in a gym. Right. So, but then that was like unheard of. Right. Exactly. So anyway. <laughs> Just amazing. Well, I would love to ask you more about uh, Yosemite and, and dig into some of that. So, you know, you're, you're really known as a Yosemite pioneer and one of the stone masters. And it's easy in hindsight to, for me to kind of romanticize this time and this group of people and imagine you guys all sitting around Camp 4, you know, knowing that you're the stone masters and knowing that you're pioneers and that you're, you know, pushing the sport forward. But I'd love to hear what it was like. How did you fall in with that group that we now think of as the Stone Masters? Uh, did you have an awareness that there was kind of this movement happening in climbing, or were you just hanging out with friends and meeting people and, and climbing? Can you describe kind of what the scene was like at that time? Yeah. Um, well, it never seemed real romantic to me, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was pretty pretty down to the bone. Uh I mean, sure. It's. I mean, it had a romantic thing, but you know, romanticizing anything is a distortion. And mm. 
living in camp four and getting up on, on the, on the big rocks and, you know, bivouacking and hiking and that's never going to really change. Okay. It, it, it's a, I think it's a mistake to think that, I mean, gravity is the same. Yosemite isn't all that much different, even though, you know, it's when you get off the ground, it's not that much different. Hmm. Uh, it's more populated on El Cap, but you go to any of the other formations, you're going to have them pretty much yourself, right? You can climb on Watkins. You can climb on quarter dome. You can go up to, uh, other than the regular route and half dome, you're not going to find anybody on any of those routes, hmm. you know, ribbon falls, uh, elephant rock. You know, there, there are certain things that have become sort of, you know, trade routes. So you go to the rock regular route on the rostrum or, you know, serenity crack sons of yesterday, you know, there, there are things that you're going to see people on, but the vast majority of stuff, other than the nose of the salad, they, what, you know, yada, yada. It's, you still have them pretty much yourself because everybody's concentrated on a few things. So, you know, the human experience is not that different now than it was. Hmm. What people are doing is different because everybody's so much better. But, uh, yes, there was a sense of something unique going on. And yes, there was a sense that, it was all ours. And the reason was that Robin, Chenard, Pratt, you know, Fra, all those guys, they were basically a generation and a half ahead of us. So there was a gap between the end of their generation and when we started where they, they basically just, they'd been up there. A lot of those guys have been going there since the early to mid fifties. And by the late sixties, like the great, the last great thing that, that generation did was in 1968 when Robbins made the first solo ascent of El Cap, or not of El Cap, but of a, he made the second ascent of the Muir Wall and he did it solo. Hmm. And that was sort of the last statement. Um, I mean, he went back and did just sack, I think it was 69, was it? So that, that, that probably was actually, I stand correct, that was probably the last. And then he went back into the prowl. But th those are like the last statements of those people. And by the time I got there in 72 and spent all, that was, I think that was the first summer I spent all summer there. That generation was gone. I We, I, we never saw them. I mean, hmm. camps came up to Boulder and stuff, but pretty much, and Pratt was prowling around, but, you know, Camp 4 belonged to us. And we knew because of Bridwell was the, he was the, the bridge between the old and the new, you know, we were all 1920 and he was 30. So he had all the knowledge and the history and he knew where all the best things were, were to do. And he was futuristic enough to know here's the future and you, you guys are here. So come along. And, you know, it, it's sort of a snowball effect. And, but we were well aware that a new, big you know something new was happening mm. and that was the free climbing revolution and it's not like pratt robbins and those guys didn't do hard free climbing but but there was another level to take it but more than that the scale of what sacker started i mean he's the guy that really got the whole big you know huge free climb you know free climbing on a huge scale Gloucester of chimney dnb you know 
the stuff that Sacker did, you could just go on and on. I mean, he knew you could take free climbing and apply it to those big things. But he hadn't done, he didn't have the bouldering or the, or, you know, as a student, he didn't, he, every one of these generations that comes along and makes a big, a big jump technically, all of those things are the consequence of people climbing more and more and in, in a more directed, intentional and mindful way. And our generation climbed a lot more. Mm. You know, we climbed all the time. And after us, you know, there's another generation, Potter and all of those guys that came along that climbed three times as much as we did. <laughs> you know, I mean, they had, we didn't have any sponsorship. So mm. you're going to have, you know, that's really what, cut it i mean i would have climbed every day all day but i had to live and you had to work and you had to do other things and you'd work and save up money and then binge on it for you know that the monkeys as they called them which was the 80s and 90s those guys had just enough sponsorship where they could climb year-round the best of them mm. right and that mm. enabled another big jump like a big one you know to where what in our generation felt like big adventures It'd be they normalized climbing on El Cap and all those big formations because they did it so much, and that enabled all kinds of things to start happening. Mm. You know, but our our generation was okay. None of this is normal because nobody's done this. But let's just get up and see what we could do. So yeah, it had a fantastic feeling of one. You know, you could go, you could go out. You, we could go and I could go and free climb things like Astroman and the Chenard Herbert on Sentinel, and you know they were there to do so it, it it was it was a crazy opportunity uh, you know opportunity and we availed ourselves of it and there were some there was a, a cadre of about a dozen people supplemented by people come you know people like Ron Fawcett and Lindsay and other people that came from other countries and later the Hoover brothers that that we're all sort of into doing the same thing. And we, we hooked up and, you know, those were really, really ambitious people. Mm. That's the thing that a lot of people don't appreciate is they weren't there to hang out and swim in the river. They were there to try to do stuff. Mm. Right. And that, cause that was what the, that was the payoff. That was, you know, that's, that's why you were there to try to do, you know, say, Oh, I was trying to make history. Well, no, really what it was, that was a consequence of it, but really what you wanted to do was just get up there and see what you can do. And there was all these opportunities to test yourself. And you had, you know, a, a perfect conflagration of a great place, great weather, great partners, super motivated people. Bridwell had the wherewithal and we all picked up on that real quick. And, you know, like a perfect storm of things came together and, and a bunch of, bunch of really good roots came out of it. And that's sort of the long and the short of it. But, you know, what was it like in Camp 4 living like that? Well, it was completely deregulated. See, that's the thing. I like the Wild West. No, there was no rules. No, can't. You know, there was, see, the thing is, you got to remember this, and not to be cynical, but uh, Oldmeyer, the, uh, I think it was Robert Oldmeyer, he was once, uh, president of eight was it nbc or abc sports and later the news one of those news stations and he said the answer to all your questions is money right and in camp four they didn't even charge you to stay there hmm. 
In other words, there was no money to be had out of Camp 4. Ergo, there was no reason for a ranger to ever go there because you couldn't get anything, right? And why go over there just to enforce, you know, marijuana laws or whatever? I mean, <laughs> it, there was no, there wasn't any reason to regulate the place because there was no money to be gotten out of it. And the Park Service hadn't come, well, I should say probably the crowds hadn't gotten to the point to where they had to regulate it for everybody's sake. And as soon as that starts and there's fees and there, there's a kiosk and there's somebody taking numbers and, you know, this is for a while, this was before that. Mm. And so it really was like a Babylon of rogues. <laughs> the drawback was climbing had, it took a while for climbing to get integrated with, with females and, you know, other people. Right. And so it did have the drawback of being a boys club and that can, that can get boring after a while. <laughs> sure. You know, it's like, I mean, a fraternity's all great. If you, all you want to do is get drunk and fuck around, but at some time you need a little bit wider audience, you know, and, and now as now that it's not a boys club and there's a lot more diversity in climbing, I think it's way better than it was actually. Mm. It's certainly richer. There's just a lot, you know, there's just a lot more involved. There's it's, it's a rich milieu now, but back then it was a white male sort of, you know, club. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, this touches on something that I talked about with Ron, you know, for, for a lot of people in my generation, a lot of us that are looking back at the history of Yosemite and early climbing, you know, one of our biggest reference points that we have to go off of is the movie Valley Uprising. And it was interesting talking to Ron and, you know, his perspective. He's like, you know, they, they painted this, the time and the scene and guys like Bridwell just as this kind of free party scene. And, you know, Bridwell's up on the nose doing acid all the time and stuff like that. And he's like, it wasn't really like that. You know, it At was all. a lot more. Yeah, At it was. All. It was much more low key, and uh, this is actually something that Ron encouraged me to ask you about. I would yeah. love, I would love to just have you describe Jim Bridwell if you could. I'd love to hear more about him. Well, Brid yeah, Bridwell. I mean, the, the, look, if you're doing, the, I, I don't. I thought Valley Uprising was fine, and I have nothing but respect for the people that made it. But the thing is, if you're doing documentary you have to go to outlying incendiary spectacular you know over the top moments to try to to try to frame the thing in an entertaining way but that that wasn't that wasn't what was happening i mean there was that sure there was some of that was going on but mainly you know brutal was a serious dude man you know he he was there that was his mission in life to do big new rock climbs on a giant Titanic scale. And he was all in on that. Right. You know what he did in his downtime or once in a while, he, you know, probably once he took acid and went climbing or whatever, that wasn't the day to day at all. He was down there. You know, if he wasn't on something, he was scoping something with a, with a telescope and, you know, getting the gear together. I mean, he, this guy was on a mission, man. And it, it lasted until it couldn't last, you know, till his body couldn't take it anymore. Hmm. And, and he was the 
sort of the avatar of, okay, this is what a a pro climber in the future is going to look like, but for the moment, this is it. It's pretty well, right? You you focus, you train, you you know you you're disciplined, and you get on. You it's like a heavyweight, or a, it's like a boxer who takes on all opponent doesn't duck stuff, right? Not in it for just to try to see how much money he can make. The whole concept which he got from Brewell got from Robbins was. You wanted to be the badass guy, right? And you wanted to do the most badass stuff. And the only way to, to establish that was to prove it, like get out there and do it. And that's what that's what Brutal instilled in all of us. If you want to you want to be a Yosemite climber, if you want to be a badass, you got to prove it every day. Wow. Get out there and get on it, right? And and then the standards were such that was. That was a large, that was much more of a psychological thing than a physical thing, even though there was a physical aspect, of course, because people would climb at the top and, you know, low end 512. But on that year at that time with, with no training, we had youth, you know, fitness and whatnot and some experience, but not like now, right? We're cross training and gyms and all the rest of it. So you made up for that by pushing the the psychological envelope which meant you on-sided stuff you started from the ground there was no rehearsing and you had to push the adventure part of it and i don't think that's really been pushed any further than it was back then Hmm. certainly the technical stuff has gotten you know has gone over the moon right but as far as just getting out there and getting scared and dealing with it. <laughs> you know, that that's, you know, some of the stuff that those people did in the sixties was pretty wild, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, with not a lot of experience and on some really crappy gear, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, in hindsight, imagine climbing any of that stuff with no cams now, <laughs> you know, just a rack of pins and those clunky boots. And no harnesses, swami belts. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty hardcore. That's pretty hardcore. Yeah. 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 How did you end up teaming up with uh, Jim Bridwell and Billy Westbay to do the nose in a day? How did that come together? Well, I, I climbed with Bridwell from the day that I got there. Because when I got there the first summer, there was only a handful of people in camp. And I just walked up to him and I got introduced to him. And he goes, what do you want to do? <laughs> right? I go, oh, well. You know, there was a there was a heroic guy from suicide. It was a generation ahead of us who did the first 511 down there called Valhalla, pretty legendary route. And we were always measuring ourselves against him, Bud Couch. And I had I'd heard Bud Couch had gone to Yosemite and tried the left side of uh, Reed Pinnacle and couldn't do it. You know, this 510 off with crack. And I go, I want to I want to do the left side of Reeds. That's like the first day in Yosemite. We were both do your shit, right? <laughs> So I packed a bag, we hitchhiked down there and did it. I go, okay, now I got a leg up on couch. I'm I'm good. And plus, Bridwell's my, Bridwell's my buddy. The next day, he goes, I got a new route, let's go. And we went over and did 1096 quack. And then it just went on and on from there, right? So I, I've been climbing with him. I, you know, he was like a father figure to me. Hmm. And also a great friend. We we went on and did all kinds of crazy shit. You know, I repelled on Angel Falls. I 
went on an expedition to Borneo with them. You know, I, I mean, Brutal was my, my dude. And and we always trusted each other. And, you know, he was, I saw him the day before he died. I interviewed him. So, or mm. the day before he went into a coma. So I, I count myself lucky. But uh, to know him, but I, I'd had, I've been going on with Brutal for a long time. And then I, I because I was interested in, in Colorado, because it had gill bouldering and, you know, yada yada anyway i i was interested in the people that came from there and one of the best ones is billy westby from the day that he you know arrived in yosemite he was a prodigy and he could do anything anything that yosemite had to offer westby could do it you know mixed climbing hard a climbing thin crack climbing face climbing you know anything he just could do it and so i started climbing with him a bunch and uh people were trying to do the note I guess in 74, people were made a couple of really solid efforts to try to climb the nose in a day, and it became sort of a thing, right? And Bridwell at that time was like the high llama of the of Yosemite. And the idea that something that significant would be done without him, without his direct participation, was not something Jim Bridwell could brook at that at the moment. He was going to be a part of that period. So I was good at white cracks and could climb fast. So he figured I could lead us up to the top of boot plate as fast or faster than anybody else in camp at that time. West Bay was fantastic at mixed stuff. And he figured, okay, Billy can lead from the top of the boot to camp six. And then Bridwell was Mr. A climber. In addition to being a great free climber, he could just take us to the top. Right. And if we put those three pieces together with the three of us, then we should be able to do it in a day. Right. And as it turns out, it was, you know, even then, climbing with three people the way we had it was really inefficient. And, you know, the gear was sort of crude and what have you. But even then, when we did that, all three of us had been climbing a lot. And it was, wasn't was anything. Like, doing that was nothing. It wasn't. <laughs> I mean, it was a great, it was a, it was a great, a fantastic experience, but not hard. Yeah. Even then, it was not, I mean, the nose is an easy route. If you just... If you're just frigging your way up and grabbing stuff or whatever, I mean, the nose is like mountaineering route or something, right? Hmm. I mean, that's not to say it isn't, you know, exposed and it has pricky bits and yada, yada. But, I mean, overall, you can get up the nose pretty easily, pretty quickly. And we were in, Billy and I were in 512 shape, and Bridwell uh, was in pretty good shape. And under those circumstances, saying, okay, any – no rules. You can just grab anything, go. I mean, anybody's going to, you know, anybody in good shape is going to get up. So even then we knew, well, this is going to be done a million times because it's just not that hard, but it sure <laughs> is a trip. Uh, it's just fascinating to hear about that. Okay. So before we run out of time here, I have to jump into some of these questions that I got from Ron, and these are going to be kind of random and all over the place, but I'm they every single one of them just made me really curious, so we'll see where these take us. Okay. Uh, the first one, he says, ask him about the bivy at the base of the gold wall. Huh. <laughs> Damn, he would remember that. <laughs> so... At that time, I'm I'm I become sort of a quasi leader of the Stone Masters, and so I'm continually looking for new things to do. Right, 
And I looked up at the gold wall, which is on Ribbon Falls. I go, I think we can free climb this. So I get the two best climbers I know and two of my closest friends, Backer and Cow. I go, we're going for it. Get your shit. So we get a, you know, I go, I think, forget about bivouacking. I know it's a great five, but we, we're good enough. We can do, you know, we can do this thing in a day. He goes, how do you know that? I go, I don't know that, but I, I figure we can. So let's hike up to the base, bivouac there, because it's a, it's a pretty good tromp to get up there. Okay. <laughs> and we'll bivouac there and then just start early in the morning and just try to free climb this thing. So we get, we get up there and everything is good. Then we start, you know, go to sleep. We have pads and, you know, these you know, summer sleeping bags. And I don't know how to describe this, but other than, you know, you hear, you see, you hear reading the Bible about the locust, right? Or, or, <laughs> or, or that kind of thing where okay. just the locusts come out, come from the sky and just like devour the countryside. What happened was silverfish. Okay. Like a cloud of silverfish descended from hell and, <laughs> I've never had anything like this. It's it's like we're enveloped in silverfish. Like up your nose, in your ears. Like the only way to get out of it was to pull the, the, the drawstring on your sleeping bag completely closed and hold it with your fist. Meanwhile, you're sweating like pork inside your sleeping bag and you can't breathe. So you have you'd have to open the, the hole. And it's too dark to run, and we have no headlamps, right? Because you're up on a hillside, and there's trees and cliffs, and you know, you're stuck, basically. And we're stuck in this silverfish, I don't know what, miasma or something, right? And <laughs> cloud. And uh, it just went on and on and on. And then, you know, finally, they left. But, it, 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 like, I've never experienced anything like it. It was the craziest thing in the world. Hmm. It was like death through silverfish. You know what silverfish are, right? Little Those bugs. Little, little silvery bugs, yeah. Yeah. They look, they're creepy looking, man. <laughs> Meanwhile, Kalkenbacker is cussing at me. It was all my <laughs> fault. <in> this. <laughs> and, and, and not only that, we couldn't free climb it. <laughs> Plus, they'd never even climbed a wall before. And like Kalk is one, one of the... He has to lead an aid pitch. I got just, he's like, how do I tie this off? He, he's got, he's got a tie off loop and he just loops it over the piton. Doesn't put it, it doesn't girth hitch it or anything. I'm just like, well, that's not how you, <laughs> you know, and two years later, he's doing new roots on our cap, but not then. But we get up towards the top and we run out of water in August or something. And Oof. it's got a massively long hike off. <laughs> and then it's my fault again and it was and by the time we got down to the staggered back to the valley floor i was so parched i hadn't taken off my swimming or my chalk bag or anything i was so parched i walked and marched straight into the merced river <laughs> I just marched right into it. I swear the things dropped an inch by the, the amount that I that I drank, man. It was just 
Yeah, amazing. We didn't get heat stroke. But anyway, that's another one of those crazy ass Yosemite <laughs> things. That's amazing. I haven't thought of that since it happened. I tried not to. <laughs> oh, that is amazing. He <laughs> thought you might have sh- thrown your shoes off of the gold wall on the descent. D- does that ring any bells? No, I can't remember. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, that was fantastic. I'm just going to keep going through his list here. Yeah. So he wanted me to ask you about the... about. I would love to hear about the cafeteria. Could you describe the cafeteria and, and what that dynamic was like? It sounds like that was a, a major hangout spot for you guys. Um, could you describe the cafeteria and then... Did you have any confrontations with the security guards? Well, you know, I stayed out of trouble in Yosemite for the simple reason that my cousin, oddly enough, was the chief backcountry ranger. So I couldn't get any, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't get in trouble up there because I didn't want to embarrass him. And so I had to keep myself pretty low key. I never did. never got in trouble. Oddly enough, it's not like I didn't deserve to get in jail forever (laughs) for some of the stuff I did up there. But I just never got caught. (laughs) <laughs> but you know, I never did any scarping. I never, never once when I was up there did any of that stuff. And but the, the but the cafeteria was Camp Four was pretty spread out. And even though you see guys around, you know, you weren't at each other's picnic table all the time. You usually climbing all day, and then you go go back and you eat, and then do really do nothing. I'd read or something, and then just go to sleep, and then we'll repeat and. The cafeteria, we would, I, everybody got up early because of the birds who just wake you up. You'd eat something, then you'd go over to the cafeteria because nobody could afford to eat there. You'd drink coffee. <laughs> okay. And that was the time that you could you could see the other guys and and get the scuttlebutt on what, what, what was happening. Mm. Who was doing what? What was it like? And you sort of, it was sort of a debriefing thing. Of all the hardcore people that were doing, you know, were climbing Yosemite at that time, they'd all be in one corner of the cafeteria talking about what was happening, and that was how, you know, there's no internet, there's no social media, there's no. That was how we communicated and kept abreast with the day to day in Yosemite, and that was the place where that happened. So it was it served a real, really practicable function. Hmm. And then everybody would get lit on coffee and then, bam, just go off and do whatever you were doing. (laughs) Gotcha. Oh, man, I wish I could go back in time and just be a fly on the wall there in the cafeteria and just listen to all that. Well, you know, the thing is, it's not it's not really different. Yeah. I mean, it's still young people, you know, wishing upon a star and talking to each other about it. And that 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 basic human dynamic isn't going to change. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, can you tell me about the Bob Locke Memorial Route on Mount Watkins? Whoa, yeah, that was a handful. Um, That was the last big Yosemite project I did. Um, Like, I'd gone to Yosemite, sort of, I was enchanted by the unknown and the tradition of the place and the magnitude and just the beauty of it and the climbing and the freedom and all of that stuff. But basically the thrill of it to me was the fact that I had all these new experiences, right? I mean, I just, 
there were things I could never have imagined that happened there. But I'd been, by that time we got on the Bach lock, Bach lock thing, I'd been up there, I think, eight or nine years and had climbed all those formations a bunch. Like nowadays, it's it's the focus is free climb out cap, right? In my day, it was it, the idea was to you climb all the formations and, and try to do as many new things as you can spread across, all, you know, just variety. So uh, I tried to climb Watkins a couple times, twice, I think, once with Westby and another time with somebody else. And both times, the Bob, incidentally, the Bob Lock Memorial Buttress is on the south face of Mount Watkins. You know, it's a giant formation that's way back in the Tanaya Wilderness, Tanaya Canyon, which is at the end of the valley. You have to hike for a couple miles back there and then do a big approach. And bam, there's a half dome size, actually bigger formation of white granite uh, right there, Mount Watkins. Never, never gotten super popular because it's just, you have, you have to really work to get to it. Mm. Boy, what a formation. Really steep. Anyway, I, tr- I tr- twice tried to do it, and both times we did that approach, got to the base, and it was so hot. Because that, that thing is legendary for the heat. It's like a, it radiates heat. And that the cl- one of the classic stories of all time with the Pratt story uh, about the first ascent of Mount Watkins he, Shenard, and Warren Harding just about died up there in the heat, in the heat, right? So we went up. Uh, first time I climbed a big wall with four people, it was Bridwell, Smith, Kim Smiths, Calc, and myself. We went up there, pumped stuff all the way up there, fixed a pitch, and then that night it started raining, and I'm talking torrential, like the Nile coming down those corners, right? I've never seen anything like it. And it was, it was August. I, I, I just have no idea how much rain could possibly, you know, the sky could produce that much at that time of the year. We almost got washed off this ledge. I mean, it was epic. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> and the next day it was still sort of cloudy. So we bailed, waited a week and we went back and it was perfect weather, you know, for that, that time of the year. And we started up this giant, giant new route. My Bridwell had scoped from a helicopter during a rescue on Half Dome, had the pilot swing by and and, <laughs> and buzz up and down the face when he gonna, he could scope out this new route. <laughs> and it was gonna have a bunch of free climbing, he thought. So we, you know, Calc and I went along. And so we get about two two days up this thing, it's really terrific. And then the heat comes. And I mean, I don't know how it didn't kill kill us because hmm. we didn't have enough water and, you know, heat stroke can kill you. Mm-hmm. We're just right out on this exposed white thing. And when we got to the, you know, two days later, we got to the top of this thing. Calc looked like a, his face looked like a tomato. Oh. Like he was so burned up. I didn't, I just didn't know what was keeping this guy on his feet. And the last four pitches of this thing went out this white dike well last there was two pitches out the white dike and then there were two more pitches at the top and the white dike was all free and the top was mostly free and so Kyle and I took over lead and we swapped with you know we swapped leads and got us to the top of this thing and I looked at Ron at the top of this thing and he he looked 
I didn't even know. I, I didn't know what was keeping him on his feet. His face was so red, you know, and I felt just completely depleted. And we managed to straggle over to this, to, there's a creek there. And again, I just crawled into the thing and just didn't get out for 20 minutes. It was freezing cold. But uh, that's another one. And after that, I was just like, you know, I've done, I was never Joe Bigwall guy, a climber, but I'd done a bunch of them by that time, simply because you always are going to do two or three of them a year. And if you're there eight years, you end up doing 35 or something or other, you know. And it, it, it was great. It was a great experience. But I knew, especially with three other guys like that, Smith, Cowk, and Bridwell, we're getting up at somehow, right? <laughs> okay. And there wasn't anything really new. And I knew it. I've done I've done this. Okay, I can get better at it, but it's not it's not going to be something entirely new experience. Mm. I wanted I wanted that, so that's when I got into traverse sideways into kayaking and all that you know, jungleering and exploring and because I, I didn't know anything about that stuff and that was what always uh, sort of motivated me to be involved in the thing in the first place was really encountering something I. You know, I didn't have any idea what I was doing. That's when I had the really the great experiences. And I, I was an expert at that time, and it just didn't have the same bloom that it originally hmm. did. I would love to hear more about that. Did you completely set climbing aside for, for a chunk of time? No, I didn't. What what I did was I, I, I completely set trying to be Joe Climber aside, hmm. right? And so from then on, I was just, I did fun climbs. Or I, you know, I did bouldering or whatever, but it wasn't. I wasn't trying to go to Yosemite to be the best climber in the world. I was never that. I was never that climber anyway. But it was fun to try. Right? Mm, mm. Yeah. And it was fun to be around those that were, because you know, I, I had, you know, it was I had a look. I went to Yosemite originally with a dream of climbing El Cap once. You know what transpired. I could never have imagined in a million years. And I was a I was a nobody that came from a nowhere town that ended up in Yosemite at a propitious time in history. Had perfect partners, had a little talent, and just by happenstance and restlessness, ended up on some historic climbs more by accident than anything. I mean, I couldn't have imagined that any of that stuff was going to happen when I first went up there. Mm. And the thing about the Yosemite experience, at least back in those days, is it was very humbling. I don't know any of those hardcore people that walk around as though they're any better or more significant than anybody else. Because you get up on those things and it destroys all of that, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, you're lucky. You know, what you come away from those situations with is a lot of gratitude that I was I was alive and I had friends and I was able to. I was able to have these experiences, you know, that was having people idolize you or whatever. And I never believed that in myself to begin with. So I never, I never could wear that with any kind of authenticity because I never believed it. Hmm. It's just us people, you know, some are better than others, but so what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's actually a good lead in. I have some listener questions for you. And this one's from Logan. He was wondering if you could describe one of the most humbling climbing moments that you've had. Does anything come to mind? 
Yeah. Uh, the, probably the most humbling one was really early on, you know, the, the, the cell they wall was supposed to be, was at that time widely considered to be the greatest rock climb on earth. So as soon as I heard that, I go, we're doing it. Right. <laughs> that was like 18 or whatever. And I got Ed Berry and we're like blazing up the bottom of this pre blast. And I get to the top of the half dollar and I'm, I'm hauling the bag and Ed's jugging up and I hear what sounds like a rocket. Right. And it's over on the prow of the nose. And I look over and I see, I think it's Tom Burke, Burke, something Burke. He had, he was jugging up the last pitch in the nose, but he didn't tie into his Jumars. I don't know how that works, but it's really overhanging bolt ladder. And he fell out of his Jumars and he wasn't tied off short to the rope. He's tied into the end of the rope. So he fell all the way to the end of the rope. Mm. And the rope was running over a carabiner and it cut it from the very top of the nose. That's the top of El Cap, right? Yeah. And I hear this sound. I look over on the, on the, on the prow and I can see Burke pinwheeling at terminal velocity right down the prow of the nose. Right. And unless you had witnessed what base, you know, base jumping, you have no idea how much noise of body falling at terminal velocity makes it's like you're ripping the sky in half with your bare hands it's so loud it's crazy and then that that chilling noise and seeing this guy pinwheel and just disappears i mean there's no way he's not walking away from that right and it just chilled me right there and it that 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 experience was more than humbling it was hmm. shattering Right. I like my whole question for being up there for, you know, doing any of that stuff. It was just pulled. It just pulled at my feet. I didn't know top from bottom, man. I just didn't know what, what I was doing, who I was or anything. Wow. But, I, you know, I had my ass handed to me like we all do uh, on more than a few different cases in Yosemite doing stuff. And, uh, I mean, it, it, it's, I mean, the whole thing is humbling. You're always going to find something you can't do. Mm. Right. And, and we all do. And, uh, you know, that's just part of it. You can't do everything. Well, thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. That's powerful. Do you remember how you moved forward through that or, or from that? Yeah, I went home. I went back home. And like, oh boy. And then I, you know, I didn't know how to do anything else really. And I just hmm. sort of rattled my way back to climb. I was went climbing the next weekend and, you know, somebody took a little leader fall and I just about jumped out of my skin. And then, you know, slowly but surely just got back into it and just put, you know, put it behind me until I couldn't, you know, hmm. later, later that stuff would come and get you. But uh, at the moment, no, I just pushed on. Hmm. I'm really curious. I would love to ask you what what has it been like over the last, you know, decade especially, but over the last few decades. I guess just seeing how climbing has progressed, watching Lynn free the nose and become the first person to free climb El Cap and then, you know, from there to what Tommy has done and then 
the Dawn Wall and now what Alex has done and free soloing the free rider, what has it felt like and been like for you to watch the sport just catapult forward? I, I think it's fantastic. You know, I never, as a rule, I don't really like to talk about uh, the past, not because I, I don't want to go there. It's just because I think the focus, I mean, that's the purpose of this podcast. I understand that. So I'll indulge myself <laughs> and you and bore everybody else with it if that's <laughs> what you want to hear. But generally speaking, I don't like to try to do that because one is when I was climbing all the time, I didn't want to hear about how great the old guys were. Right. I wanted to, I wanted to do my thing. Hmm. And that, that has got to be the way it is. And the people that own the sport are the people that are doing it. And so I believe that the, the attention should always be on who's really doing what. And so if you're currently one of those people that are out there doing it, it's your sport, man. We, we, we're, you need all the attention and you deserve it. And so I always thought, you know, look, I have my day in the sun. God bless them. It's great other people are doing it. And they deserve all the credit they get. And and I, I'm grateful to be here watching it. And it's amazing. Mm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And it's, you know, like it's, it's all the same people, man. It's all the same people that are motivated in much the same way. Okay, yeah, there's gigantic personal differences in race and background and creed and ethnicity and and gender and what have you but you get on you know old man gravity does not discriminate mm. and once you get up there it's just us right you and the rock and that's the great leveler and you know that's the thing that, that we'll always have in common and so on, on that level i understand you know it's just we're all doing the same thing mm. In, in, in some fundamental way. And I'm just glad people are doing it. You know, and it's amazing to watch. I want to ask a question from Lena and I'm going to, you know, add to it a little bit and refine it a little bit, but she was curious what you thought was more valuable in climbing, uh, being a jack of all trades or a master of one. And I'd be curious to kind of break that out and hear how you thought about that for yourself. You know, did you strive to be a jack of all trades or, or, you know, did you have a focus? And then on the other side of it, what, uh, what inspires you most in other climbers, the climbers that can do it all versus the climbers that have become so specialized these days? Well, I like, you know, personally, I like doing all around stuff because I'd like variety. So, but at the same time, there were certain projects I wanted to do where I had to, I had to grow a bit in a specialized way. Right. So I had, if I had to, you know, get better at face climbing, I'd do, I'd do a bunch of that to try to get hot doing it and then hit the project. So I think both of them, you know, I, mean, I was pretty motivated and ambitious. So I had to sort of play both cards, like try to be an all around guy. But when things started getting difficult for me, I'd have to focus on a specific skill set. You know, I'd have to hand traverse a bunch more to get more endurance or you know, whatever it was. So Hard to answer that, but I think, uh, and I don't know if that is an answer, but that, that's that's it's true relative to how I went about things. Mm. I was the jack of all trades, and I became an 
quasi master of a few of them because I needed to to complete projects. I mean, I was always good at white cracks. Um, and oddly enough, I was always good at lab climbing because I grew up doing it. But other than that, you know, jack of all trades, I guess. <laughs> climbing a lot of different places too. So you're going to, you're going to develop, you know, a pretty wide skill set from doing it. Maybe you're not, not pushing the limits at all of those places, but at least I, at least I had the, the, the opportunity to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, cobbles, everything. I want to transition into your writing. I'd love to hear how that came into the picture and evolved or grew along with your climbing. And when we were talking, you know, half hour ago or an hour ago, when you were telling me about Camp 4, you used an interesting phrase. You called Camp 4 the Babylon of Rogues. And, you know, talking with Kauk, there was all these crossovers with you, with the climbing and the guy, the, you know, the climbing that you guys did uh, together and then all the people that you climbed with. But... I also had a long conversation with Ron about his movie career and working with Sylvester Stallone and the movie Cliffhanger and all that. And I wonder if you could tell me about Rogue's Babylon. Hmm. As I understand it, that was a novella that you wrote that ended up being the basis for the movie yeah. Cliffhanger. Yeah. Well, that was really fun to learn about that. Yeah. I I mean, the truth be known, I was always much more of a writer than a climber. Okay. I was incidentally good at sports and adventure, you know, adventure sports. And I loved them and I put a lot of time into them. And I, as I said earlier, I was came along at a, at a good time. I had great partners and was just damn lucky and had some motivations. So, I mean, under those circumstances, you're going to do stuff, right? But consciously, my initial love and what's carried me through life was always writing. I, I got hooked on that. My mom was a scholar and I got hooked on reading and that stuff like super early. And I just started doing that naturally, like somebody that comes across a piano and just starts playing it, right? I mean, I just started writing stories from the start and then I went to school and grad school. And, you know, I did the whole sort of junk, you know, the basic training for doing being a writer and then, you know, worked doing little pieces and then for magazine pieces and then later for books. And then, you know, the, the problem with Hollywood and, and I was I never liked screenwriting. Hmm. I never liked it. I never liked the form. I never felt like it was a natural form to me. And so I always felt like I was sort of faking it. I mean, I wrote a bunch of shitty TV shows and what have you, but, <laughs> but uh, it was, it was always a money making thing for me because I had, you know, I was married and had to, had, a girl in med school and yeah, I mean, you have to do any writer is going to generally have to do some, uh, just commercial mercantile work that enables me, you know, may enables me and others to do the stuff you really want to do, which is probably not going to be too profitable, but you probably make your reputation on that stuff. Right. And, and that's what I did. You know, I, I've written a bunch of how to books and, you know, all of that stuff. And that's all that, I mean, there's two things. One is I wanted to try to give something back to the climbing world in the form of maybe keeping people from getting killed. So I did all those anchor books. And then at the same time, I had, I had to have an income stream and that helped in that regard. And, and Hollywood made a bunch of, you know, I made a bunch of money working on that too, but it was never 
a I'm not a Hollywood person. You know, I'm I'm just not, mm-hmm. and I don't put myself above it. It's just I I'm just not a bro in that way, right? And <laughs> and I never fit that. I'm not sophisticated enough, if that's what it is. And it just never meant enough to me to really get in there. And the other thing is, script writing never felt like a natural form to me. I'm a narrative writer, I'm not a journalist. I'm just basically a narrative storyteller. And and I've always been that. And that's always been my first love. And that's what I've pursued, you know, the whole time is trying to, you know, I was a slow learner, had a really slow learning curve. I had to get over a lot of immaturity and, and a lot of just bullshit to try mm-hmm. to get to where I could do what I meant I was meant to do. And I'm approaching that now. I think my last, the last book I had, uh, Icarus syndrome is getting close to it. So, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad I've stuck with it. It's given me a life and, you know, it's been an amazing journey. Um, But Rogue's Babylon, you know, movies are going to need ideas and stories that get trans translated into films. And I've been pretty good at doing that. Just not screenwriting. So Rogue's Babylon was another, unpublished you know story but you know the truth is that what ended up on the screen was actually the combination of a bunch of different people's stuff okay you know, michael france had it you know did a take on it jeff long who's another one of the great he's a terrific writer he did a take before i did on it and then got accused of copying him which Later on, we realized wasn't true for either one of us. We all just, you know, I mean, it was it was the plane wreck that happened. That was full of that was based on the plane. A plane had crashed in Yosemite. It was full of weed and coke, <laughs> and that was a historic thing. And it was quite natural that something that explosive and newsworthy that more than a few people were going to try to take a crack at writing the story about that. Jeff and Jeff and I both did. And parts of what we did, plus Michael France, ended up in Cliffhanger. Okay. Interesting. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a little, you know, that, that's it, it usually movies are, unless you're really powerful and really, really good, it's going to be a smorgasbord of people collaborating on stuff that ends up on the screen. And that was another case of it. How has your writing practice evolved over the years? You know, you talked about Icarus syndrome, feeling like you're getting closer to this thing you were meant to do. What is your writing practice like these days? I mean, it's always been the same. I I, I don't have any problem disciplining myself to do it because I like doing it. And the same goes for writing or for reading. You know, I've always been an inveterate reader and you try to stay, you know, abreast with what's happening reading wise and then reflect what's happening in your own life and, you know, the way you see things and what have you in the writing. And it's just gotten just a process of just weeding through yourself until you get closer and closer to what feels like what's true for you. And that's been a long journey for me because I started off, you know, in, in bad circumstances as far as the family of origin and, uh, so it took me probably because I developed such powerful defense mechanisms and and 
denial, you know, whatever. I had to work through a lot of that stuff to actually start even understanding what was true. Hmm. And uh, that's been a long place, you know, a long, a long journey. And that's sort of, to answer your questions, sort of what it is. Trying to just sort your th- sort yourself out to where you can be transparent and real. And that, you know, for some, that's real easy, but it was never easy for me. Hmm. Uh, before we started recording today, you were telling me about uh, Caroline Treadway and, and watching her documentary film Light that came out this last year and how important that was and, and how important of a conversation it is that's now being had around the conversation uh, around the topic of uh, eating disorders and climbing yeah. and how valuable that's been. And uh, you mentioned that you're working on your own article that's kind of peripheral to that or an adjacent, um, you know, very important topic that isn't getting talked about much. Are you willing to to share that? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Share about that? Yeah, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. What? Well, first, I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic and I always, you know, I didn't become one of those until life stretchers got horrendous. And then my default mechanism was to start drinking. Like I, I would, I, it's it was sort of astonishing to me because I'd never been. I smoked, used to smoke a ton of weed, but it was shitty weed, right? <laughs> and and then I never drank much. And then all of a sudden, you know, my wife got mental illness, and then got pantry pancreatic cancer and died. And then, you know, my I just something snapped. I didn't give a shit about anything anymore. And all of a sudden, I'm drinking alcoholically. Right, this is close to 20 years ago. But anyway, and I managed to finally, you know, realize what the hell was going on, and then got into the recovery program, and you know, never went back to it. But there was a scorched earth time in my life that. You know, my behaviors and my, especially around, you know, personal like relationships and what have you, you know, I was an utterly out of control, you know, no empathy, no, I mean, it just demonic, basically. And what you learn in recovery is that the alcohol, if you have the ism, which I do, which means you can be compulsively addictive with anything, right? And the reason why, to skip back to what you were originally saying about Carolyn Treadway, an eating disorder would qualify as an ism. And Mm. eating disorders have been a huge problem in the sport climbing world forever, but they weren't acknowledged. When she was trying to do this, because I know her really well, when she was trying to do this, this documentary on eating disorders, he couldn't get people to talk about it, right? Because you have to completely come out of the closet, so to speak, or out of, out of the shadows, admit it, and then start talking about the struggles to get out of it. Because you can't possibly get out of the situations until you realize, one, I, I got, this has got me by the horns. It's made me do crazy stuff. And I have to seek some way to escape this pain locker because if I, so long as I stay in it, I'm going to keep on other innocent people in it with me. Hmm. Right. So she did that for, 
for eating disorders in the climbing world because it's a big problem. And now I'm trying to do the same thing with alcohol and substance abuse, which is a runaway problem in the climbing world, hmm. right? And it isn't just alcohol and drugs and what have you. And that's not to say it's 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 any bigger than anything else, but it's definitely there. And I was I was encouraged by what the by what Caroline did, which is to pull out of the closet. But right after that thing screened, I'm out of Joshua Tree because COVID let us go climbing again. And I and I'm climbing with a bunch of guys when I'm seeing, man, half of these guys are drunk and they're acting like jackasses, right? And I go, that's that was me. And I acted like an even bigger jackass. I mean, my relationships with females for about, for a while, right? I, even when I quit drinking, I still didn't have enough recovery to to get out of the behaviors, which are the big thing, right? I mean, I, I was out of control, man. It was ridiculous. And it caused a lot of damage that I, I didn't appreciate until I got a sponsor and went back got you know totally sober well i actually quit drinking from the day one that i entered and i haven't gotten back to it but uh you get emotional sobriety and see wake up to what you've done and go back and make amends and you know i got a bunch of women screaming at me for being a coyote and a you know all of this you know a liar a pathological liar and all of that stuff was true hmm. see that's the thing every thing that I was accused of being was absolutely true during that time. And, you know, you can recover out of that for certain, but you're not going to do, you're not going to do it without acknowledging this is what happened. And this is what I had to do and continue to have to do to keep from ever going back to that. Cause that's not, that's death. Right. And the fallout, you know, the fallout from, from those behaviors is not, it's, like, like it's, it's massive. Everybody around you suffers because you're completely out of control, you know, completely, you have no truth. Nothing you say means anything. I mean, that that's hell, right? And you, you have to, you, you have to grapple with that and see what the fallout is. And then intentionally day after day for the rest of your life, act differently. But, you know, that starts with saying, Hey man, we got a problem here, Right. And you can stay, I mean, people are going to yell and scream at you about being having been that way, and you can stay in maudlin guilt, but that still, still makes it about you. Hmm. And it's not, you know, somebody that has the isms has to get past it being just about them. It's a bigger problem, and unless you look at it in that way, it can, you can, it, you, there's no way to change it. If I make this just about me, it's just me, myself, and I, and, and and you know, you're sort of stuck there. What does the world do? It's a, it's a giant problem. And that's what that's why my hat goes or my uh, I tip my hat to Carolyn Troyway because she knew, even though she had the ism and she got other people, big people, right, to to confront the problem there, that this problem was way bigger than any of them. Or the pro or the suffering they they went through and put others through, that this is an endemic problem. Unless it became bigger than them, then on a large scale you couldn't confront it or seek a 
any kind of corrective measures unless you acknowledge it as a bigger problem. If you just keep it on the individual, you can bash somebody forever, but that doesn't help. That, that's not a solution. You might be justified in doing that. God knows I did enough bad shit and unconscionable stuff to where I just, you know, in some world deserve the wrath like that, that I get from people. Lucky I didn't, you know, my 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 bad run, you know, I got through it fairly quickly comparatively, and I had a lot of help. And mostly I had somebody to show me how to get out of it and to do something, you know, better and to try to try to confront the problem. I, I had like once I snapped out of this thing, I was like, how am I going to make up for this? You know, like, how do you, I can't roll back time. How am I going to get, like, get past the karma of being just a demonic person from hell for a while? And I met a guy in, in, in uh, AA, the AA rooms that when he was 19 in a, in a drunken drug fueled rage, got in a fist fight and killed a guy. He got life without parole. Spent the next 37 years in, jails like San Quentin and Folsom, the governor finally paroled him when they saw he was completely different, you know, a different guy than that. And well, I, from the, I met him after he, shortly after he got out, he was one of the most solid, real guys I'd ever met. And I figured if this guy can come back from that, I got a shot here. Right. Hmm. Okay. And man, that, you know, that guy didn't give me a, an, inch of slack i saw him every day for a long long time you know he walked basically walked me through it trying to get right and then once i started moving that in that direction it stops becoming about it's no longer about me there's a wider issue which is you know this is probably five to ten percent of the population suffers from this and with that many people in, in the adventuring and climbing world you know, you don't have to. You don't have to go far to either see or remember somebody that you've come across that's like that, right? Because a lot of people from my generation, it. I don't know if it killed them outright, but it certainly cut a lot of lot of years off their life. Yeah, and that's preventable. You know, people can actually recover from that. Not easy, but it's but it's doable. And so, you know, that that's sort of. Uh, yeah, I have an article coming out in Climbing Online that addresses, you know, I out myself totally about this being a problem. And, you know, I'll tell you, in some ways, I am proud about some of the things I did in my life. But I think I'm most proud, one, of the way my two daughters turned out, and two, I will die sober hmm. and trying, trying, to be, trying to be a guy who does the right thing. Like every day I get up trying, you know, with that as my mission, and that is, considering where I came from, that that is that that is comforting, right? Knowing just how bad it was and how bad I was, and you know, I know I'm not alone. This is my I have no exclusive on this problem. And if in pulling the thing out, I can address and get people aware. I mean, look, before Carolyn Treadway did what she did with eating disorders, that was the giant elephant in the room. Nobody wanted to talk about, right? And we never, I've never heard anything about, about alcohol and substance problems in the adventuring world. We all know drunks that go off and be, and do ridiculous stuff, right? And, and, uh, 
I don't want to get on too much of a rant about this thing, but it's an important thing and it's close to my heart um, because I was, the, I marched point, you know, for the devil for a while. And, and I know that, you know, you get, in, as I said, you get in that hurt locker and all you can do is pull people in with you. And that's really, really destructive, but people can recover from it. And that's worth talking about. Hmm. Well, thank you, John, for sharing all that and for talking about it here. That's uh, really powerful to hear that. Yeah. So you, you know, you'd ask me what was humbling. You know what? Or somebody had a question. What's the most humbling? You know, climb climbing situation. That that was humbling. That took that 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 whole going through that whole thing and you know continuing to, to work with it. That that'll that'll humanize you. You know, if nothing will, or you die. So those are the choices. <laughs> I chose to lot, you know, to to live, and but in the process, it re, you know, the big Largo thing, and the you know that just went right out the window, man. Hmm. You know, right out. So that was a humbling experience, but I apparently needed it. So, so there you have it. <laughs> well, I think that article will be released by the time this comes out, so I will be sure to to share that for people. Um so they can read your story. Okay, great. John, I'd love to ask you about Icarus Syndrome. I'd love to ask you about your most recent book, where the ideas came from, um, what it is. It's a collection of short stories. Can you tell us a little bit about that book and how that project came together? Well, Icarus Syndrome started, I mean, I always had stories going, right? I'm always working on something. And I had, over the last, I don't know, three, maybe three years, I'd written a bunch of stories, maybe 25% of them were adventure related, but most of them didn't have anything to do with adventure. And I had this collection of them and then COVID hit and I had one contract to do a book. And I got through that fairly quickly because I couldn't do anything. I'm in LA and it was hellish here, right? During COVID. I mean, people like the hospitals are overrun and I mean, it was awful here. Probably in, in terms of numbers, like the, I think it was one of the worst places going, LA County. And, you know, now it's one of the best because of the, the, uh, the great, uh, vaccination campaign they, they've run. I mean, they had, they had it going through, they opened Dodger Stadium up. You had to drive through, man. You hang your arm out, you jabbing, and you just get out, like, move <laughs> along. They were running 40,000 people through there a day. You keep doing that for a couple wow. of months. Yeah. I mean, That's it was incredible. They, somebody figured out something, right? And they had the <laughs> forum open. And, you know, now it's like, I think it's approaching 70% of people have at least one shot. So, wow. you know, we might be able to level, you know, get herd immunity, at least for this area. Who knows? I don't know. But anyway, we were really locked down here. And so I had this collection of stories and a first round on a literary, not, you know, memoir kind of stories, which is what these were. That's what you're only getting started. You know, if you're approaching a thing as art, you have, you know, basically a line drawing. Now, once you have a first draft, that's where the real work comes in. And that is great stories are made through the revision. It's all revising and polishing and it might only change the story five percent but that's how stories get great hmm. and 
I had all the time in the world. I got another con. Somebody was really interested in publishing the thing. And I've done 50 something books now, so it's not hard to get a publishing deal. And D'Angelo, which does terrific projects, and they have one of the a world-class editorial staff. I got hooked up with their senior editor there. He loved the stuff. And so I just dug into the thing and over a period of a couple months or four or five months, just leaned into these stories like like I had never leaned into anything. I had a world-class editor I was working with. And yeah, at the end of those things, you know, we at the like you never you never get stories to where you're like, okay, I really got it. You know, it I couldn't do any more. But you get to a point to where you're just like, I give up. I can't really I, I, if I keep working on this thing, it's going to get worse. <clears throat> so, you know, it's gotten as good as it can get, which means it's as authentic as I can get. And it was a terrific experience for me because I hadn't really had the opportunity. It was always deadlines and this and that. This is even after all of these years, this is really probably the first time I had, I had owing to the lockdown and having good story, pretty solid some solid stories to begin with and then working with another world-class editor which really into it you know we got this another perfect storm of stuff happening and at the end of it i think we got we got something worthwhile mm. yeah i'd say so <laughs> i haven't had a chance to read the whole thing yet but i've read about a third of it so far and it's just been it's just been great it's been a fascinating glimpse into your life and uh, the stories some of them are you know, wild and adventurous and, and crazy. And some of them are really deep and heartfelt and uh, explore some of the realizations, uh, you know, from your teenage years and, and things like that. They really span all sorts yeah. of different topics. So it's it's not related to climbing necessarily. This is more about your life and different chapters of your life. Yeah, I think the only climbing story in it is the Icarus Syndrome itself, which talks about speed climbing the nose, basically. Okay. You know, was that, there was that one time to where you know, that one team got killed and people were taking giant falls and then Libby Sauter fell out. And, you know, we were really questioning, hey, man, what, you know, what what is what's going on with this? Right. Mm. Is this really. You know. Is this really sane? I mean, I guess you could ask that about anything. Right. But. Uh, <laughs> right. But it seemed it seemed like there wasn't going to be any any easy answer or any answer. But it was a fun exploration. And this is, you know, what brought me to my knees and also really woke me up is when I went to the AAC and heard heard uh, Brett talk, right? Quinn Brett, mm. who fell, you know, she's speed climbing the nose and fell and it bounced off Texas Flick. And she's one of the best female climbers, you know, ever. And she had the, I think she had the nose and the, or she was trying for the nose record had the record on a couple other El Cap routes and, and she got paralyzed from the waist down. Right. And then a couple, not too long after that, Hans Florin, who has every record crashes and burns up there and busts both legs badly. And then after that, two of the most experienced, maybe the most experienced speed climbers pitched off the cell, they right into the ground. And this all happened pretty, you know, within a, a short little span of time. And, and I was just like, I, I knew Quentin, I saw her and she stayed in my hotel room and in a wheelchair. And, you know, you, it's that's going to sober you up. Right. And it, it had everybody that came that was in that orbit of that thing. Meanwhile, Alex Honnold and Caldwell are 
you know, are, are pushing one under two hours and Tommy's gone, I'm done with this, man. <laughs> oh, and me, you know, and Connell's gone, I'm going to do it faster. So, you know, <laughs> it had, it, it had a whole cast of characters, right? Mm. And, you know, very emotionally fraught material. And that, but that's, I think the only climbing story that's in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think anyone that, uh, I think anyone that listens to this podcast, I mean, so much of what I am interested in hearing about and sharing are just the human stories. And I think that really comes through, through your books. I think people will really, will really get a kick out of it. Uh, so Icarus Syndrome is available on hardcover right now. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Is it going to be coming out on Kindle? Uh, I know yeah. you talked about reading the audiobook as well. Yeah, I just, my girlfriend's a uh, voiceover artist, so... She's got a studio and the whole thing. So we, we just, I've done, I, just by default, I ended up doing a lot of voiceover work, working in TV or in production. So, and I've done a lot of readings and what have you. So I, I, I feel confident I can, I'm going to be able to do a pretty good job of reading it, but I just have to get on with it, you know. <laughs> okay. to do it. So, you know, there's always something else. And that's a time, pretty time consuming thing because I, it's 65,000 pages, or excuse me, 65,000 words. And that takes a while, right? Right. <laughs> and it took me six or six to eight hours of, you know, whatever. But I mean, a good audio book. Don't we listen, love to listen to them when we're driving out to Josh or wherever? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great. I'm looking forward to that. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I'll link- yeah oh, you know, incidentally, Steve, you have a great voice. <laughs> no, I mean, you have a radio voice for certain. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lucky accident. I, uh, I didn't know that until I started doing this. And, uh, I've heard that feedback from a few people and yeah, I, I don't know what to say. I'm just, I guess I lucked out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, when you get talent, it's not like you work for it. Right. You know, it just, it was just came with the package. And, and <laughs> I look at, I look at, I look at my life in the same way as I, I was able to do a few meaningful things. Yes. I had to apply myself, but the gifts, and abilities that I had were, were, I didn't earn those. They just came with it, right? Mm. What I had to earn was trying to correct the wrinkles in my system, mm. right? That's what took the effort. Yeah, I like that imagery. That's great. John, I always ask this of my guests before I let them go. What is something that you've been feeling especially grateful for lately? My daughters. Oh, man, that was such a fast answer. That's amazing. Yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, I got two... I have two daughters. One's a pediatrician down in uh, Orlando or near Orlando. And I got another one that's an oil engineer that's working on a big project down in Argentina. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And they're, you know, I I hadn't been able to travel because of COVID or I didn't want to until I got vaccinated. But just a couple of weeks ago, I went down to uh, and visited my daughter. She's got two, two, I got two grandkids and she's got two down there and her husband's a pilot and they just recently immigrated from Venezuela, where she was, where they're both from, and um, like she came out right, like she's just such good people. You know, it just boggles my mind that she could have any. You know, I was always a loudmouth and trouble, and you know, I mean, I had some good qualities, I suppose, but you know, she's like the opposite, right? So easy to get along with, so caring, just a joy to be around. And when I was down with her, you know, a couple of weeks ago, when I got to spend a week down there, 
you know, I had so much fun and there was no, it's like zero pressure, zero drama, you know, just the fact that I had anything to do with somebody that great, you know, was, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's amazing to me. And, um, I couldn't feel better about that. Hmm. So, yeah, that's, I feel blessed because of both of them. They're, they're both great people. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for your time today, John. Thanks for all the stories. Thanks for being so open and uh, for doing this difficult work and uh, writing a difficult article and, you know, doing something important that I'm sure is going to help a lot of people. So thank you so much for all this. This, is, this has been a real privilege and, and a real honor for me. Hey, well, the, yeah, the pleasure is mine, man. I mean, the fact that anybody would want me to talk about anything <laughs> is, uh, I mean, when you think about it, it's pretty cool. Right? Yeah, it is. It is. Like, I don't have such an elevated opinion of myself that it doesn't sort of somewhat amaze me, you know, that I'm actually talking, that there's an audience would, you know, give a damn about what I'm saying. So <laughs> I, I think uh, I, I count myself lucky that that's the case. So thank you, Steve. <laughs> All right, John. Okay, buddy. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Shake it up, stop when the clock hits 13 Sing one, one, two, three, three, four Cuz, cuz, cuz No one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it Cause no one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it Cause no one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it Cause no one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it